Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Hello, listeners, and thank you for joining us on another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and around the world. Today we have for you Wim Namu from Iraq. Welcome, Wim. Hello, Simon. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. Go ahead and tell us a bit about your story, Wim. What's your heritage? What brings you to the United States? Well, I was born in Baghdad and At that time, I didn't know. I knew that I was Christian and that the majority of my friends were Muslim, but I really didn't know anything else about my heritage as a Chaldean. And I actually started learning about that when I came to the United States in 1981. I was 10 years old. I was the only Middle Easterner in my school, actually myself and my younger brother. Of course, it was a culture shock because when we left Iraq, we had to leave in secrecy. We could not let the government know that we were leaving uh, because it wasn't allowed to get a visa from Iraq. And so we had to go to Jordan, the neighboring country, and live there for a year. And I think I totally blocked that memory out because it wasn't until recently, actually, my mom spent the last five years of her life living with me and she passed away in February 2019. And I did get to the chance to ask her once. I said, Mom, how did we travel from Iraq to Jordan, because I don't remember any of it. I don't remember the last day we were there. And that's because the adults knew that we were leaving, but they didn't tell the children because of fear that we would spill it out, you know, in school. So I said, what route did we take? Did we drive there? How do we a train? She said, no, we flew there. And up until she told me that, I thought that, that the first time I'd ever been on a plane is to come to the United States. So I realized that that experience, I think, was so traumatizing that I blocked it out because I don't remember any of it. In Amman, we waited for almost a year to come to the United States. We obviously came here for what my parents knew would be a better opportunities politically as well as religiously. I had no idea of that, but so I just felt terrible at the time. I missed my friends and I felt like, you know, I just didn't feel like I really belonged here. I do see why they did it. And thank God that they did that. They made that decision. Do you mind sharing what was the historical geopolitical situation in in Iraq at the time? Why you guys had to leave? Were you guys considered refugees upon entering the U.S.? I don't know how deep you can go with that. Sure. In Iraq, Saddam was coming into power. He actually, even as vice president, was very powerful. My dad knew that once the Ba'ath Party came into into power, that we needed to leave. And one of the reasons is because when that change was happening, he had a very good job as a head of the accounting department for the railroad station. And he had just made a comment to one of his colleagues that he just felt like this was not a good idea that they were coming into power. He, he was concerned. And his colleague 
went and told his boss. And then they relocated my father somewhere very, very far. And it really broke his spirit because he was away from his family. And uh, for him to travel, he could only come like once a week or once a month because it was very draining. He had to you know, take a train to get there. And, and he was working all week. And at that time, I think even now in, in Iraq, you only have one ho- one day off. We don't have a weekend, two days off. So it really broke his spirit, but he realized like he, he can't just live in the place like this. Uh, he also realized he had seven daughters and four sons and he really loved his daughters. He knew that that's not uh, the best place for them to be able to live the life that he wanted for them. And there was an incident that happened as well. As soon as Saddam was coming into power, what happened is there was a parade. The teachers told us that it was mandatory to attend this parade. That day, my niece was over. My niece is actually my age. My mom, she got married very young. And so her and my two sisters were pregnant at the same time. So I have a niece that's six months older than me. And my niece said, do you want to come and sleep over? I said, well, there's a parade tomorrow and it's mandatory that we go. And my mom and my sister thought, no, you know, it'll be okay. We'll talk to the teacher. No worries. So I went and spent the night over my niece. And the next day when I attended, they had us line up in the courtyard. The principal stood in the in the front and she called out two people. The first was a sixth grader, I believe. She went in front of everybody. She hit her with the ruler. And I saw the sixth grader, a girl, turn around and tears in her eyes. She walked back in line. So then I was next. And I went up there and then with the most vicious look, the principal raised her arm. I remember very high her hands and then she slapped me and I passed out. When I think about that incident, I think that I passed out for two reasons. First, the fear of her, you know, I was very small and she was very mean, but she also really hit me with all her power. And the next thing I know, I, I woke up in class with all the students trying to wake me up and stuff. And then the second time I got slapped by that same principal because I couldn't answer a question in a science class. So that instilled a lot of fear in me. And meanwhile, my parents were keeping everything hush-hush that we were leaving. So one day I was writing about this incident in my book. And, And by the way, I had no clue how much this traumatized me until later because a lot of people blew it off as, oh, well, you know, I was hit by, by nuns. I was hit by this. But you know, we were talking, you and I were talking earlier about what's in our DNA. And when you come from an oppressive land, and especially on an ancestral level, it's not just about that one incident. It's not about the second incident. It's about living in an environment where you are living in a house that's like so solid, the bricks are so thick, and you have to whisper because you're afraid somebody's going to hear you say something and wondering, well, Who's here, like in the middle of the night? Why are we so afraid to speak? It's the fear that was scared. It was a fear that when we received a letter from our brother who was in the United States, who was petitioning for us to come as immigrants, that we had to be hush-hush or don't say we got a letter from America or don't say we got gifts from America and that whole entire fear on a regular basis. So when I asked my mom, I said, mom, do you remember what the principal's name? And my mom, you know, she, she's someone who just doesn't believe in like saying any negative words and, you know, whatever. And and she said her name was Shet. <laughs> when she said that, the way she said it, I knew that 
my mom, when she heard the news, because I didn't tell her, my cousins told her, but I came home. I, I didn't even say anything. She never said anything about it, but she also realized she can't confront the person who did that. And I think it ate her up that she couldn't go and defend me. I heard the pain in that. And like I said, it took me a while to understand what a gift that my parents brought us here and the sacrifices they made and the silence they had to endure to make sure we arrived safely. And then to top it off, my father, shortly after he came here, he got very sick because he was, he had such a high position over there. He was happy. I mean, we still, even me, even though I left little, we love our birthland. We have good memories there. We had beautiful friends. So imagine somebody with, you know, he would get up in the morning here and he would wear his suit and walk in the street and there's like nobody walking here and there's nowhere for him to go. But he tried to keep his spirit and it didn't last. But he did that for us. Why did the principal hit you? Is it because, do you know? This is when we realize how bad things are going to get. It was saying that you cannot disobey anything or disrespect anything regarding Saddam. You, you had to just obey. It's an authoritarian regime. And that's what they look like. For me, especially over the years, as I see what's happening sometimes with freedom of speech and things like that, it triggers those memories where, you know, like my father making a comment caused him to be relocated and us suffering as a result, and the fear involved with being able to speak up. I mean, we couldn't even speak up. And furthermore, we weren't even able to look into our own heritage when we were there. You know, I spoke Arabic. I was fluent in Arabic, reading, writing. I grew up in it. I did not pick up the Aramaic language, which is it's a thousands-of-year-old language that was spoken by Jesus. And, and it wasn't a Christian language. It was it existed before Christianity. It's, uh, it stems from Akkadian, which is an empire in Mesopotamia. By the time my mother had me and my younger brother, so the language was kind of trickling off. But one of the reasons, too, is because we weren't encouraged to promote you know, uh, our heritage because of the Arabization of, of the whole Middle East and Saddam wanting to do that. And yeah, it was like a warning, like, don't ever, you know, not not obey, basically. I think you said that you didn't go to a parade or something. Is that why? Yeah, it was because I didn't attend Saddam's parade. That, that oh, was wow. the reason that I was, she said there are two that did not come. And they didn't even ask, like, what happened or anything. It was like, okay, come up. And, you know, the way they do it, too, which, by the way, they still use the same system in Iraq. When you're standing in the courtyard and you have the whole entire school standing there, you know, because it's right before the bell rings and doing it in front of the whole entire school. So that places like a, a, a deeper, it's not just about the physical aspect, but the shame involved in it to do it in, in front of the whole school to shame you for you doing something that in their perception, just how dare you? And I was like, uh, what was I at that? I think I was like seven or eight. I was very young. Can you remember that incident so vividly? Oh, I rem I never forgot that incident. And and like I said, when I tried to express it, I often it was dismissed, not to my family, just I think in the Middle East community, because this is something unfortunately it is common. So it was dismissed as like people having seen worse. 
However, there was a teacher, she unfortunately passed away, my teacher last year, Lindy Andrews. She's a best-selling author of the Medicine Woman series. And when I connected with her over 10 years ago, she saw the wound that that placed on me. And at that time, ironically, I was experiencing major writer's block. I couldn't like write something that I was trying so hard and I couldn't get to it. I didn't know what was going on. And I thought, it's oh, it's my kids. It's my husband. It's my this, this, my lifestyle. But really, when I tapped into this area, I realized that that had created a kind of wound that sometimes it takes a while for me to express myself at that time, especially there was like all these fears in my head. You know, we were talking earlier, you and I also about conditioning and the society where we are born and raised. So the conditioning of like, if you say the wrong thing, you will get slapped, just Mm -hmm. kind of stuck on me that, okay, am I going to, do I have to be afraid? How can I be a writer and write a story and be authentic and be afraid to use words or to make certain decisions? If I grew up in a country where I can't express myself, I can't do what I want. I can't make the decisions that I want. And here I am, I'm in a country that contradictory is telling me all the opposite. And I'm thinking I'm living the opposite until I started digging deeper and thought, no, there are some ties to my ancestral land that's still affecting me. That really gives us just a vivid capture of what was to come for the Saddam Hussein regime, right? And that was even before so you've never gone back. Is that true? Or have you I gone did. back then? I went in the year 2000. It was during the sanctions. So again, despite you know what had happened for me, it's the friends that I had. It's the memories. I, it's your birthland. I have wonderful memories there. When I went in 2000, and my mom just, she always discouraged me from going. She said, just wait until things get better. I said, mom, I've been waiting, you know, by then it was like 20 years. I said 20 years and I keep seeing things getting worse. And it's one war after another, after another. I said, I don't think it's going to get better. Interestingly, I'm saying this to her, really not knowing, but I just, thank God I want when I want, because in 2000, I visited during Easter. And it was in 2003 that the war happened, that the U.S. invaded Iraq. After that, it was like all over that nobody visited Iraq. Like now people are starting to visit Iraq from my community, but they'll stay in certain safe regions like in the north. And they don't really visit Baghdad, for instance. So I went ahead and and went there for three weeks and it was a great trip, but it was saddening in a way because I could see how the wars and the sanctions had really worn people out. People were upset and I, I don't blame them. They used to call people from America, Bush's people, or Christians, Bush's people, even the people that were there that were Christian, we were called his people because we were part of starting the war. Plus um, Christians had relatives outside of Iraq that were able to help them, that the Muslim community didn't as much. And that was kind of sad. You know, everybody was suffering and everybody deserved help. And I came back. That trip was just really an eye-opening thing. When I came back, I was able to come to terms with like what I left behind is not necessarily what was in my head. And then I also started looking at my country that I call home, America, differently, the United States differently. I I think I finally embraced it as my home after all that time. And I saw the things that my parents were trying to provide us with. But then in 2003, the war happened. And that was very challenging for me, especially because I had just seen my relatives 
and the people three years prior. And then now I'm seeing them bombed like on TV, but it affected me even physically where I'm seeing this and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like I'm part of both worlds. Like, how is this happening? And how do I live with myself not feeling so much guilt that as an American, I'm somehow part of this, even though, you know, like somehow you feel like your hand is on it. That was very painful. Then over years, you just kept seeing things get worse and worse and worse to the point where in 2010, the churches started getting bombed and tragedy after tragedy. And then in 2014 was just final when there was a genocide on the minorities of Iraq and the northern area. And that included the Chaldeans, Assyrians, and the Yazidis and and other minorities. And by the way, the Muslim community suffered a great deal as well. So it's not like anybody really left unscathed. Everybody was hurt by this. But what happened is our ancestral land is just was emptied out of its natives at that point. So my parents' birth village, which had been, which, you know, was around for over a thousand years and where, where my grandparents are from. So it emptied out from like 10,000 people to now there's, I don't know if there's even 10 families and not not really directly inside of, of the town. They're living now in wow. diaspora. A lot of them came here. Many of our relatives ended up coming to the United States. So Michigan now has the largest population of Chaldeans in the world after what happened. It was the second largest up until 2014. Now it's the largest. And the city that I live in, which is nicknamed Little Baghdad, which my recent book that was just published is called Little Baghdad, has the largest population of Chaldeans in Michigan. And the majority of the relatives that I had seen at that time, that really was, I was so worried for them. And these were like first cousins. They were very close. They live here now. So we're very grateful for that. You know, our hearts still are with the people that have that endure what they endure. I recently did an article because I, I write for the Chaldean News and I did an article where I interviewed three mayors of the various towns and the districts there. And, you know, they face a lot of challenges. There are people that still live there that weren't able to leave and they face many challenges and they still have security issues. And the mayors try to stay there to make the place a better place for the people. The folks in your ancient village were they killed what happened is the night that isis was attacking everybody fled the churches got involved right away and they started moving people my current job since 2019 i've had the position of the executive director at the chaldean cultural center which houses the world's first and only chaldean museum and we have a program that's called Digital Storytelling, where people tell us their stories. People here, refugees or immigrants, and the people that fled ISIS tell us of the night that it happened, whatever clothes they were wearing, they just took the items that were necessary, like their paperwork, money, and they fled. They fled and they walked as far as they could. And the churches were trying to get gather cars and buses to move them to safer regions, and Kurdistan played a role in helping them to the Kurdish area, which is an independent region. And she said, you know, we were walking for miles for days, no restrooms, no food, 
you know, with children because there wasn't enough buses and there wasn't enough transportation, but they were just, they just kept heading north. And I have many people, they cry while they're being interviewed because they show us pictures of what they heard later on happened to their homes, which was basically they were destroyed. You know, ISIS went and destroyed their homes completely. They can't return to them. And yesterday I was at a prayer breakfast and we had a table there and we were t- talking about this. Uh, one, one young lady, she said, you know, I wonder, I don't have the deeds to my grandparents' home. I wonder if we can get it back. I mean, or we just to be able to, you know, have their, to retain the house, like it's their home. So we talk about these things now because we're still working with the Iraqi government to try to resolve some of these issues. We're having some of our leaders help us do that as well. So just for my listeners who might be wondering, can you give us historical perspective of what the religious landscape was pre-Saddam and during the Saddam regime and probably current day? Like, what is that like? Because all some of us are exposed to is being raised in probably a majority Christian country or such as, you know, for myself in Jamaica and now the United States. We don't really know what it's like to have lived in an environment like Iraq, where you have different religious minorities and just so different from the Christian experience. Can you give us a sense for what what was it like on an everyday life for you when you were growing up? Are you a Christian, an Iraqi Christian person? Okay. So everything I have learned from that about that land and its history, I learned it here. And then I realized why that happened is because in our school system in Iraq, we normally didn't study anything past 1400 years ago. So anything past Islam that you don't really any of it's considered like ancient civilization, only if you're in a college level and you take these courses but it wasn't just regularly taught. So I had no idea about any of that past. When I'm here, I found that we're from a a land currently called Iraq that was called Mesopotamia. The name was changed by the British when they occupied Iraq in 1921, it was changed to Iraq. And right there, it took the power away from that name that's so powerful and has such biblical roots. And it also detach the memory of where we really Iraq is. So when the wars were happening, most people did not know where is, what is Iraq? Where is Iraq? They mistook it for Iran. I thought like, well, we've been involved with them for so many years. And then it's an ancient Mesopotamia. And when I go to churches, whether it's my church, meaning the Chaldean Catholic church, or whether it's an American church, Mesopotamia is brought up. It's in the first Genesis, the story, you know, of Adam and Eve. The book of Genesis all takes place. The setting is in Mesopotamia. Most people don't know that because of the fact that the name changed. And so there was like a a disconnect in the memory. It's where the religion started because of Prophet Abraham is from Ur, land of the Chaldees. And this is where we trace our roots to ancient Mesopotamia, to Prophet Abraham. And then the three religions had roots from that. Chaldeans before converting to Christianity, 
were pagans and were Jewish. And St. Thomas the Apostle, on his way to India, he stopped at, in Mesopotamia and he preached the gospel and people started converting. But it was not done in, mm-hmm. with any violence or anything. People just started converting. At that time, the language of the region of all of the Middle East was Aramaic. It wasn't Arabic. Then the Iraq was invaded by the Arabs. And little by little, they started converting to Islam and they and they started adopting the Arabic language. And what I say to most people, it's kind of the situation when any empire is taken over by another. Similarly, like in the United States, there was the Native Americans and the Europeans came and took over and then people had to relinquish their languages, their culture in order to become the more westernized or how Europeans are. But the difference, what I tell people is that they were able to continue to live. So even though if you say that there was, there was slavery, but over time, people were able to evolve from that and make changes so that there's a diversity. Right now, there's no Jewish people left in Iraq. I think they've come down to three. There was four and one of them recently passed away. There were a lot of Iraqi Jews that had to move to Israel and other parts of the world. They, you know, and then it was the Christians had to move. So the difference is, is that, that we have no right to our ancestral land. Whereas in other communities or other countries, people have, who have been in these situations were able to fight for their rights and oftentimes succeeded. We did not, we did not succeed. When you are a minority and you keep getting distinguished and you are oppressed for so long, the only option is like you change to other people's ways or you'll be killed. Really, the, the saying is like your home is where, where you make it out to be. We understood that, look, like God has been generous. We come here with nothing because we couldn't bring hardly anything with us. Most of us, as I said, had to leave in secrecy. That meant you can't sell things. You don't. And if even your degree, your degree most likely meant nothing here. So you come from nothing and you have to, even if you're a doctor, you work in grocery stores, stocking, whatever, you know, so that you can make a living for your family. You work seven days a week. And and then you get stereotyped for that. Like, well, you work all the time and you just want to make money. Well, no, we, we just have to survive. And this is what, how we know to survive. So we come here, we work hard. We couldn't bring whatever we have with us. And then here we are in a place that we can call home, that we can have a center, that we can have a foundation here. We have a Chaldean Community Foundation. We have the Chaldean Cultural Center. You realize that, well, um, we've created, because the United States allows us to, we create the kind of home that we wanted to hear. And then you realize like you can really love where you're from and you can honor it and you can share the stories anywhere. And now with the internet and technology, we don't feel restricted. I have wonderful friends who are archaeologists in Iraq whom I'm in contact with and we want to do programs with. And I realize we're more connected than ever to that land because we don't have to be somewhere on a physical level anymore, especially if that particular place doesn't really want you. You know, it, it wasn't us not wanting it. It's like the land uh, or the people or some whoever, and in in, not the people, there's wonderful people that 
didn't want this on anyone. The people in power don't want you. So if you're to that extent not welcomed, you just leave. The focus of Saddam basically, I guess, is it ISIS was to bring in a certain type of uh, Islam. Is that right? Yeah. So to be fair, Saddam was, and I know people like have whatever issues with this part, but he was fair to Christians. And I don't know if it's fair, meaning that Saddam really was against anybody that felt threatening. We did not feel threatening to him. So nobody really bothered us as Christians. When I was there during the sanctions as a U.S. citizen, I was with relatives all the time, but I did not feel anything. And I know that the citizens wouldn't have tried to cross me in any way because he, him and his government wouldn't have stood for it. He was against any kind of extremism. And our churches, you know, were fine, were safe. I remember between the evening of Easter and Easter Day, we traveled, we hopped from one church to the other, walking. Everybody was celebrating, no issues whatsoever. And it was after his downfall that all these extremists just came in, you know, and this is the thing that we as Iraqis have issues with the war. The borders were not protected. So you had all these extremists, non-Iraqis, that were just waiting for this moment to just flourish in and set camp and then do what they wanted to do. When I was in Jordan, we weren't allowed to go to school, my brother and I, because we weren't residents. I love books and stuff, but I'd never read a novel before. And, you know, we were only given textbooks in Iraq there was a book laying around called Gone with the Wind in Arabic, which was over a thousand pages. I was nine years old. I picked up that book and and devoured it. I just loved that whole, you know, the Scarlet O'Hara and uh, her tribe and the 1800 cents into it and everything like that. And, you know, and here we are, we're waiting to come to America. So in my head, you know, I'm waiting to come to America and see the puffy dresses and the horse carriages and all this. And then my my siblings, they saw how entranced I was with the story. So they took me to see my first film, Gone with the Wind, in, in the theater, which was subtitled in Arabic. So another shock, aside from coming and not seeing, you know, like being away from friends and stuff, I remember we landed in the airport and I'm looking around and I'm just thinking, that I would see the girls with the puffy dresses, the horse carriages, you know, have the picnics, like these extravagant barbecues with these extravagant naps. (laughs) And then I come here and I remember when we landed in Metro Detroit and I'm thinking, you know, I realized that uh, Detroit, Michigan is not Atlanta, Georgia. And that uh, 1981 was not, (laughs) 1800s. And to me, you know, living with that story for a while, I I really was expecting to see something more similar. So it shows you that, you know, all these misconceptions that people have, or as a child, for me to read this novel and think like, these were my expectations for the United States. (laughs) Whatever stories we had, you realize like you're coming into something coming to a country, the name is like made of gold. 
itself, just the name, it gives you just such a dreamy state, such richness. So the when you arrive, it's nothing like what you thought. There's a lot of disappointments. There's the reality kicks in and you realize uh, things are not as easy as they look. You know, you have to work very hard for things. And in my country, in my birth country, my dad was the sole provider for our whole family. And he didn't have to work actually as hard as we had to work here with all of us working. So that was another culture shock. Like, why do we, we're all working. We're all just nonstop. Everybody's doing something and we can barely make it. Whereas there, my dad is the only person working and we don't have like these credit cards and we have to pay all these things separately, uh, all these bills coming your way. So we saw that this country has amazing things to offer, but at the same time, if you're not focused, it could really suck you into the, the, the wrong direction because of the distractions and the incredible amount of stress and responsibilities that, are, that is placed on each individual. You have to work hard not to get sucked in. The constant, or is it the rat race or hamster wheel, whatever you call it, yeah, very task-oriented, and, you know, you really have to work hard to bring in some of the other aspects of life, spirituality, you know, community, and so forth. You've given us quite a bit of history about what was going on in Iraq at the time. I think that was so intriguing to listen to you and to hear such a different perspective about what who Saddam was, because I think what all that we know, a lot of us, is from the media. We don't know anything else. Why did you guys think that you needed to leave if Saddam was so, you know, respectful and protective of Christians in the country at the time? Why did your parents leave? I mean, what was the fear then? The fear was that, well, the Ba'ath Party, if you did not become a member, you, you can't get into universities. You have to become a member. My father did not be, want to become a member of the Ba'ath Party. And a lot of people did become just by name, but they didn't participate. Also, as Christians, we did not have the same rights in general. For instance, you, a Christian, can't get a job that's higher and a higher position than his Muslim colleague for the basic fact that you're not, you know, that you're Christian. So we were considered second-class citizens. But living under the kind of fear that Saddam had, you still don't want to live under that fear. I'm saying that in comparison to what came after him, uh, yeah, he was decent in that sense. But it doesn't mean that it felt good to live in that because for us not to be able to say the word America, for us not to be able to discuss any kind of politics, for us to live in constant fear, for my mom to see like if her daughter is, is hidden that way and she can't confront, she can't say anything for fear of probably what they would do in return or what they would do for my father. Maybe they would fire him. Wow. That kind of fear is on a regular daily basis. And so you don't know what's going to happen. You know that you're not going to be treated more badly than maybe somebody else. But then, you know, you're still living under a, a lot of fear. And, you know, 
I want to say something just about the history, because it might seem like this history belongs to us in some way, but Mesopotamia is the cradle of civilization where writing was started. The first recorded writer in history is a woman from ancient Mesopotamia. Her name was Enhadwana. She was a priestess, a princess, and the first writer because she was the first to decide to sign her name. The clock system started there. A lot of scientific, mathematical things started there. And I think part of what, for me, especially after what happened in 2014 with ISIS, knowing my heritage and knowing what they tried to destroy, I realized like, if we're not going to write our stories down, then who will? We're considered by many already extinct, that we're on the verge of extinction and that we are extinct. We're not, not yet. But what most people don't realize that the West, it's part of that East culture because the first city states were started there. But because that region, all that's focused on either the biblical aspect during the Genesis or the time that we were at war with Iraq and all the other richness and history is left out. Whereas with other countries, that's not the case. So there's a void there. There's an unfair void. It's unfair for all of us because if we see that, that rich civilization, what it, what it did for us, I don't know, maybe we would have even treated it more properly. You know, rather than thinking, okay, it's a third world country. It has turned into that. But that land had so much more meaning than that. And regarding another reason about why we left since, aside from that fear, the pressure that we felt just from the Saddam, I didn't know that then, but my father, he was a very educated man. If you look at the trail and the history of the Christians and minorities in that region, They've just experienced one war, one oppression, one genocide after the other. You know, from the Ottoman Empire, there's been so many. And to me, maybe he sons that that's what's going to be the case for us. And that became the case for us, for our communities, I mean. Join us next time for part two of this episode. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence.